Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Just a couple of quick plugs. If you enjoy the show, don't forget you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a decent review. We also have a couple of cracking events coming up, and if you enjoy the podcast, I reckon there's a decent chance you'll enjoy these events. The first is the Global Reputation Forum that's taking place in Oxford on July the 3rd. This is a new kind of event for the PR and comms community. It's all about what a good or bad reputation means for organisations. And interestingly, there are no communication speakers at this event. Our speakers are politicians, journalists and CEOs. The second event I wanted to flag is our annual Future of Influence event. This was a sellout in 2017 and I reckon the programme is even stronger this year. Both events are on the homepage of PRMoment.com. OK, plug over. This week on the PR Moment Podcasts, I'm pleased to welcome the Chief Global Officer of Talk PR, Tanya Hughes. Talk PR is a PR firm with annual revenues of £4.5 million. It's part owned by MNC Saatchi and part owned by three of the current directors. There are a couple of things that make Talk PR a particularly interesting story. One is that most of its income comes from a very well-defined market specialism of beauty and fashion PR. The second is that as an independent UK PR firm, 60% of its revenue comes from global work. Tanya, welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. Tanya, I reckon you've had a pretty interesting career. You, you started in something like 1987 in, in working in PR. Are, are you still enjoying it? Uh, yes, otherwise uh, I wouldn't be doing it. No, seriously, I'm really enjoying it. And um, that's because I like change, I think. I've always liked um, new ideas and media. And things have changed more in the last five years, I think, than in the previous 25 I've been working. I mean, it's it's things are changing so fast now that I... I couldn't fail to be interested in what's going on. Is that a fashion and beauty thing or is that a public relations thing? No, no, thing? I think that's a, a media, a consumer media, a global media, a social media, quite frankly, a phenomenon. Everything in the business uh, is changing. Okay. I mean, I think that's probably well documented, but just, just give us a flavour of, of what sort of stuff you're talking about there. Well, I think our job is much more complex than uh, than it used to be. Um, yeah. It used to be very straightforwardly about earned media, about editorial. Um, you know, the, the classic, you know, newsprint, um, you know, broadcast, radio, etc. But um, of course, there's a whole world of social media, not just for clients' own platforms, but um, the world of influencer, you know, digital influencers, and, and how that has changed. Uh, how communication is done. So you can't just talk to 10 titles and tick jobs done. Mm. Um, it's much, much more complex than that now. And the complexities of planning and, and activation that come Yeah, around. and also, mm-hmm. frankly, understanding where the value and the kind of engagement comes from. I mean, there's okay. a lot of data and, and flying it... around. And, you know, sometimes you can be blinded by the data and occasionally, and that we're finding this now, that editorial is... It's not so much king again, but it, I think the importance of it and the resonance of it is is, is being recognised again um, to lift 
impact out of the sort of the morass of uh, social media. Is that because there's a sort of virtuous circle between influencers and editorial, or is that something? Uh, there's that, but then I think there's also an authority uh, okay. challenge at the moment because I think there's so much noise going on in social media that it's very hard to. Uh, distinguish between what is, you know, um, just sort of flash in the pan and what actually has some some depth to it. Okay, we'll come on to that a bit later on in the show. But I just wanted to, to talk briefly about your your time at Lynn Frank's PR because there's a mm. a number of um, I don't know PR industry stalwarts, shall we say, who, um, who who did their time at Lynn Frank's, and um, clearly it was a, a high uh, high profile agency in its day. Um, but back in the 1990s, your, your frankly, well, as far as I can see, career-defining interest in, in fashion and beauty market began at, at Lynn Franks. Yeah. I know you didn't work exclusively mm-hmm. on that sector at Lynn Franks, but but you know what I mean. It, mm-hmm. it, it clearly changed something about your career. Uh, but what is it about the fashion and beauty sector that that's, you know, I guess kept you interested in public relations for the last 30 years? Well, um, I mean, God, Lynn Franks was an interesting and uh, occasionally brutal place to work. And, you know, I, I worked on everything from Asda and Lemsip through to um, fashion accounts. And um, I first started working with the British Fashion Council on London Fashion Week and the British Fashion Awards. I think it was 96 or something. Um, introduced um, our first Procter & Gamble brand at the time that we worked on. Um, a very serious company to work with for a company like Lynn Franks, which seemed yeah. to be very, you know, radical and culture-led and, you know, cool. We we, we landed Procter & Gamble's Vidal Sassoon brand because of our connection to Fashion Week. And they were the first commercial sponsor of London Fashion Week. And, you know, kind of the rest is history in terms of how fashion and non-fashion brands now work around the world. So, um so that was a very interesting part of fashion. It wasn't simply about the clothes. And clearly, you know, that's just a, a personal interest. You know, you can be very interested in fashion if you have that kind of sensibility. But I'm interested in the business of fashion. I think that's what's kept me interested in it over the years and working with the British Fashion Council and seeing how they help the whole industry grow, um, how it relates to brand Britain and our creativity and the, the business, uh, you know, impact that it has on the country. I think that's what I find interesting about fashion. And, of course, beauty is a very closely related industry. You know, beauty and fashion clearly go together as far as a consumer is concerned. But then, you know, as as businesses, there's a big commercial um, sort of connection as well. Okay. As I uh, should tell listeners, as I arrived to to record this podcast, (laughs) Tanya brutally critiqued my, um, my, my outfit as it is. Um, and I said it was sort of more more, more appropriate for the building site. You look but, like a builder. Thank you. Today. Um, well done, Ben. Uh, what is the just just, <laughs> just led me towards that? What the business of fashion is what I mean. Yeah. So it's clear what I meant to illustrate was it's clearly something I don't get. But yeah. just give us a snippet onto to the what is that an insight in, into that that business of fashion. Well. For a start, fashion employs an awful lot of people in this country. It's a huge employer, particularly women, actually, and and I'm I'm sure you'll realise a lot of that's in retail. Um, But as an industry, it's bigger than the car industry in this country. I mean, it it is a hugely important contributor to the bottom line of Great Britain. Um, But it's also, I I think, part of our kind of cultural expression. We're really, really good at fashion in the UK, partly because you've got at one end a sort of Shoreditch cool, almost kind of punk element of fashion. But then you've got Savile Row and then you've got the sort of more traditional tailoring and more conservative end of fashion as well. So we've got we've got the whole lot. 
um, and we are really, really good at it. Okay. So as a um, a, as a public relations firm working that market, it's a it's a big opportunity, I guess. Mm. Okay. You met your your current business partner Jane Boardman during your time at the Communication Group. Yeah. Um, I just think it's pretty cool that okay, all right, on and off um, has been the case with that. But you've worked together for almost thirty years. Um, that's quite a relationship the two of you must have. <laughs> well, it hasn't been a continuous thirty no. years. Um, I, I mean, you know, we're we're serially monogamous with each other, but right. we we have had little breaks. But, but um, that almost makes because you've sorted. Oh, you you've, you've split up or, and then know. sort each other out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, so that's way, true. No, that's true. Even okay. even better or worse, depending on how you look <laughs> at it. But and we're still together now. Mm. Um, oh God, what's the base of that sense of humour? Um, and also, actually, just knowing that it's only work. <laughs> yeah, it's only work, you know. It's not, and we're not brain surgeons. It's only work, and okay. ultimately, the relationship and the friendship is more important uh, than anything. But there's lots of business partners who fall out, aren't there? Um, and there's, I mean, most, I don't, most marriages definitely don't last that long. So there must be something. Um, well, keeping on the business thing, because uh, so many. Um, partners start in business yeah. um, and, and then it doesn't quite work through mm. people just grow apart or have different they want to take the business in different ways mm. or, or whatever else but mm. clearly you two have something that works and I'm just intrigued what maybe you can't define it but it, there's, there well, must be something there I think it comes back to agreeing at the outset of any given venture and this latest one has lasted eight nearly nine years is being really honest up front about what you want out of it okay and accepting that that might be slightly different things between you, but just, you know, setting down the kind of the parameters of how that's going to work. So there's no point agreeing to do something if you don't fundamentally want to do it. And you've got to be really, really honest up front about what that is. But you, I guess on this occasion, you, you haven't changed your mind, but people do change their minds on um, that. Um, so yeah, that but, can, you, but you can, can talk continuously. Yeah. And businesses, frankly, at the moment, you know... You know, we used to talk about having a five-year plan. No one has a five-year plan now. I mean, you have to continually reappraise things now anyway. So that's the point at which you also need to personally say, am I doing the right thing right. at the moment? Yeah, you know, for me and, you know, as well as the business. And I guess the benefit of you two, have, but prior to talk, you, 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 you'd worked together and knew each other really well. Cause, yeah. Um, intriguingly, quite often people set up a business not necessarily knowing each other that well, so there's a there's a whole area of risk there, isn't there? That you're you're um, building a complicated relationship with somebody who you, d- you you don't know as well as you might. Well, that's true, but then also being good friends, there's a risk that, yeah. as you said, the okay. business could then ruin the friendship. So you know, it, it, can't, it, sort, of, and it sort of works both ways. And of course, I've you know met other, I haven't only worked with Jane all my life. I've met lots of other people, you know, through business who then have become great friends, and so you know. It's worked. It's human. It's right. all human relationships, you know. Okay. Communication's a thing in the end, isn't it? And trust. Yes. Okay. Um, one of the things, I, as I mentioned on my intro, that I find interesting about Talk to is that you've specialised on the beauty and lifestyle sectors. Um, presumably, you could be a bigger organisation now if you'd have diversified into other areas. Um, that that's interesting because we... we Started Talk PR started as a, a broad-based consumer PR agency within MSC Saatchi. Um, and 
you know, had clients ranging from Dixons and Travelex through to, as I said, a lot of P&G brands on the beauty side, British Fashion Council. Um, but actually, we found that specialising in the lifestyle and, and premium lifestyle and beauty end of the business was the profitable end of the business. And right. that's why we decided to specialise in that, uh, you know, particularly around the time of the crash, which um, clearly had a big impact on a lot of FMCG businesses. 2008 crash. Yes. Um, and, you know, we... We've enjoyed doing that, and we have doubled the size of business since we split that um, specialism out from Asisarchi. Um But you know, listen, there are always challenges. I mean, I think I think beauty now is a massively growing sector, and I think we are starting to benefit from from growing in that sector. But we also do um, some booze brands, uh, you know, some food brands. I mean, there's there's plenty of diversification in our agency, and I think it is just about you know, adapting to the changes in the industry, you know, building really good client relationships. It's the same challenges as ever. But, you know, the, okay. the P&G change, um, just to explain to everyone, when, when Procter & Gamble divested a lot of their um, beauty brands to Coty, you know, that involved a lot of global reorganisation. And, you know, that that hit us hard. Um, uh, but we've built that back up with Coty. Now don't have a conflict conflict policy on beauty we we work for johnson johnson yeah and other and other small beauty brands um and you know it's going well now okay but what's interesting was that you didn't particularly make a a strategic decision we're going to follow but build a a beauty lifestyle pr firm actually what you did was make worked out where you made your most margin um and, and potentially do the best work and and the business evolved that way as opposed to, right, um, that's where we're going to go. Yeah, it, it was the best work and, you know, the most interesting work and the most global work and the thing that was, was you know, driving the kind of the interest in the business. Okay. Um, but, you know, that that was going to be anchored in beauty because that was a specialism. And there's no doubt about that because of all the Procter & Gamble work and, right. and that connection back to fashion. But we, we it's premium lifestyle and that can translate across, you know, that sensibility can translate across, as I said, you know, drinks brands, food brands, you know, cars, etc. Okay. Just talk to me a little bit about how Talk PR came about because it's, it's quite an interesting story about how, how it came about and, mm. and its current ownership structure. is quite rare. I'm not saying it's right, not saying it's wrong. Um, but you, Talk PR came, the genesis of it came came from a, a, a leap from, geni- from M&C Saatchi. Um, just, just, just talk me how Well, M&C Saatchi, uh, Talk PR was set up within M&C Saatchi by Jane. Uh, she was at Ketchum. This is when we were on one of our breaks. Uh, I was at the time MD of MC Saatchi Sponsorship, which is a sports sponsorship agency. I did that for seven years. Uh, that was fun. Lots of Formula One and other sports and a bit of arts as well. Um, uh, Jane set up Talk PR as the consumer PR arm of MC Saatchi, um, which went very well. And I joined her a couple of years in. Um, and it was it was a few years after that that the split came. Um, so uh, it was 2011. Oh, no, 2011, what was I saying? Uh, 2009, wasn't it? Was that that? Yes. God, I'm, I'm, please don't pin me down you. on the Please don't matter. pin me down on the date. Late noughties. Yeah, yes, late noughties. Um, that was when uh, we saw an opportunity, i come back into the business, we saw an opportunity to specialise in the premium lifestyle brands that okay. weren't M&C Saatchi's core, um, but were, were ours, and we were doing very well out of them. Presumably and then, because sports, sports marketing sponsorship was having a tough time around then, is that fair um, to say? Actually, no they, they, no, they were doing very well. I mean, when yeah. I left 
talk and Steve Martin took over um, MC Sarge's sponsorship and then eventually evolved it into sport and entertainment. It, it's, it's gone from strength yeah, to strength. Done I mean, well he's now, done yeah. an unbelievable yeah, yeah, yeah. job. Yeah. I mean, you know, wow. But I just mean at the time, it was a, it, it was a, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued I why it happened, that's all I meant. Uh, why we split out? Well, b- yeah. Because the the overall business was, um, I, I suppose the the more mass consumer business, which gravitated naturally towards M and C Sarchi as a brand, wasn't doing so well after the crash. Yeah. Uh, but you know our sort of beauty lifestyle premium brands seem to be relatively yeah. protected. There was you a know, few it, years it, there where it, yeah. they were going all right, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it sort of, you rode the storm, right? Yes. I mean, so I think the premium you, sector you was was not exactly untouched, but was, was less less hit by the recession, yeah. I think. Um, and so we then left left behind, left behind sounds like, you know, we sort of, we dumped them, but not not at all. I mean, we, we, um, we well, left the uh, Dixon's Travelette, some really brilliant brands that, Chris Hyde's worked on um, and he set up MC Sarchi PR yeah. within MC Sarchi more explicitly and much more allied to their core business right. and has grown it from there and you know again but, it's, but it's, quite, it's quite it's quite as an observer mm. it's quite an interesting story because you, that what, what happened was that you had they had a, a, a specialism within their business that mm. they they in effect hived off into talk mm. PR that's done really well, uh, and then they grew and um, kept exactly the, the bit call, that, yeah. that worked for the rest of their business, and yeah. that's grown uh, and grown. And, and yeah, no, really, they got really two well. for the price yeah, of one. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, and they are brilliant. But there's a parent there, company, isn't there? there's totally. Not, uh, lots yeah. of. I mean, I've no interest in, in picking up MSC mm. Sarchi, but lots of parent yeah, companies yeah. would have made. There'd have been some negativity within that choice, uh, and actually, mm. they made a positive decision. It seems to have worked out pretty well. It, uh, I mean. That's one of the great things about having them as um, a parent company. They are very willing to support you when you want to do something interesting and new. You know, they'll they'll keep a check and obviously keep an eye. But you know, if they're confident that you're going to make a go of it, they'll they'll support you all the way. And they they've been brilliant. Uh, yeah, so they've got two for the price of one. Well done, David Kershaw et al. Yes. Okay. Um, bearing in mind that Top PR, give me a kick if I'm wrong, only has offices in London. Um, we do. How come sixty percent of your business is global work? It's a um, well, actually, impressive. I suppose that comes back to um, Procter and Gamble. That's a, a thread that keeps running through this, um, and also to the genesis of our um, our uh, our big global network now, which I've, I've grown over the last nine years. Um, Procter and Gamble said to us, "God, this must be back in two thousand six, maybe two thousand seven." That they loved working with us on various beauty brands, um, fragrances, skincare, etc. They loved us because we were, and still are, a boutique specialist agency with brilliant media connections, the right sensibility, great for premium and um, lifestyle brands. But, and this was a big but, unless we went global, unless they could get scale out of us, it was going to eventually be bye-bye. You know, because P&G, well, not just P&G, Big global businesses want scale. Um, so it's like, mm, you kind of need a network, don't you? So maybe they're implying that we should be bought by somebody or whatever. Anyway, we thought, oh, my God, we need to set up a network. Yeah. So do we go and we buy know- businesses or do we go and just sort of, yeah, you know, join on to other networks? It's, and we, we looked at loads and loads of different models. Um, and again, around the t- sort of time of the crash, it actually turned out that we could find some really brilliant independent agencies around the world who were specialists so specialist in fashion beauty luxury lifestyle um you know 
travel, all, all the kind of related businesses, but we're independent um, and would basically effectively join a club. So we set up Sermo as a, a network based on relationships rather than ownership. So we don't own any of our partners. Started no. with four of us in 2009 um, and there's now 18 partners around So the since you've launched, has that 60% of your business been global work? That has basically happened since you launched the the the, the 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 independent agency club that is serving. Actually, that's a real. I mean, I suppose in a sense it's happened in parallel. We started doing a little bit of global work for PNG, and by global work I mean, um, you know, yeah, pre-sermo. Oh, you know, God, it's the old-fashioned thing. Oh, a toolkit, a global toolkit. Well, you know, clearly you have to have central materials for consistency and control that then get used in different markets. But you know, that's the most basic, basic old-fashioned version. But clearly, it's much more sophisticated now, and really involves testing material with markets to make sure they're actually going to use it because a lot of global material believe me goes into a little global bin in a local office because it's not fit for purpose so you know things have become much more sophisticated over the years so as we became better at doing global work from the UK Mm. it 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 became better because we had partners we could talk to to make sure it made sense and was going to travel around the world properly and be inspiring and you know fit for local markets and sometimes those partners worked on that business with us sometimes they didn't um and because we are an open flexible network if a client wants us to work with another network in two or three markets we can there's no you you don't have to work with so-and-so who's part of sermo in no and in fact you know we sometimes do global work on brands and then say ketchum in the uk is the local market implementer or it might be Helen Knowlton or someone else in China, whatever. You know, it, it, it's completely flexible, okay. which is great. But, but what I'm interested in is that um, it's kind of the story behind that mm. because you had, I mean, not to, not to make it too dramatic, but you had a, a, a business survival problem, didn't you? Because if, if P&G said, yeah. look, we're not, we, we really like you, Tanya, but we, we need to work with the international agencies. Yes. So it yeah. doesn't matter how much they like you in the UK, it's, it's bye-bye, Tanya. Yeah. Um, so... You launched Sermo in a moment of of, of, of crisis or potential crisis. Well, we anticipated need. a business, yeah, a, a business put, need. Right. We anticipated a business need before okay. any kind of crisis. That, hit, that's, believe the, me. that's what I'm trying to yeah. work out as a timescale mm. because how much of your pre so you're doing a bit globally. Yeah. Then you then you saw this coming down the road. Mm-hmm. Launched Sermo and then you've done more since. Yes, revenue Abs- wise. A- yeah, absolutely, okay. and I think we wouldn't have been able to build up so much of our global business or had the credibility to do it if we didn't right. have that global sensibility it's not necessarily actually for clients about actual capability on the ground because often a lot of them do have either local resources or as I said existing agency relationships but it's just about trust that we really do know what's going on around the world and particularly in the lifestyle and I keep coming back to these words, lifestyle premium sectors, you know, Mm. that sensibility is really important. And there are lots and lots of really big market differences. And you can't assume, um, you know, they're all going to kind of be the same, even though, of course, you know, the test for all global campaigns is consistency. because you have to make sure the brand message is the same. But, you know, there are going to be market differences. Okay, just testing on that a little bit Mm. is global is always a a funny (laughs) word when it comes to public. Because... I, I, if we were to have a debate, are, are there actually any global PR campaigns? That would be an interesting Not one. Not really. Have. Exactly. So the, <laughs> when we say global, what are we talking about? It's multi-region, but what, what does multi-region. that mean? Multi-region. We define a global campaign as going across more than four markets. National markets or... or, or, or yeah, so, that- you know, say 
So we do some global work for a a luxury property company and we do that in London, Hong Kong, China... And um, and Dubai. So that's that's so that that is a market, global not, piece of business. Not but cons- it's not clearly total gotcha. global. Yeah. Of course, it isn't. Yeah. But it means that you're 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 managing multiple markets. Sure. Yeah. But okay. of course, a global campaign can go across thirty or even forty markets. Yes. Yeah. But um, but not that many. Or well, maybe they do these. Maybe yeah. the digital and social everything's global. I don't. You could. We could be. There's another yeah, podcast no, of, there. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, of yeah. course. Now, uh, so uh, you know. I, I'm a bit of a cynic on these these sort of independent <laughs> no, really? agency clubs, mm-hmm. um, because and, and I can see that they can work and 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 they obviously do work. So I'm not I'm not for a moment suggesting that they they never work. Um, but it's when I empathise with a, a potential international buyer of public relations yeah. or, or, or or marketing whatever, um, it seems to me, and I'm delighted to be proved wrong, that I would be more likely to buy in the concept of. A, a a wholly owned mm. public relations mm-hmm. global multi sector whatever business that that I can then mm. trust or or believe is going yeah. to roll out my campaign mm. globally more effectively than a, than a bunch of independents. Mm-hmm. Um, but you presumably disagree with me. Well, I disagree for two reasons. One is particularly in in our sector, our, our specialism, there's no global network that would have that specialism in every market. I mean, it's just simply not credible, right. you know. So, you know, well, just, just a quick why? Um, because they they wouldn't have that breadth of capability. So, for instance, right. you know, if if the majority of their work or profit clients are corporate clients or you know healthcare clients or whatever, they're not going to suddenly have a really really brilliant lifestyle team that can handle a premium whiskey in Poland if 90% of their business is healthcare. It's just not going to happen. So right. it, it is about specialism. So that's the first thing. So just knowing that you have the right credentials for the job. Um, but, you know, clearly that only applies to certain global companies that want that. Yeah. Um, but the second thing is, you know, all businesses are based on humans and there is no massive global network in the world that does not have pockets of brilliant and crap you know it it is it is it doesn't matter what your systems are what the consistency what the reporting structures are some agencies within a network will just be better than others so it's it's exactly the, world the same is relative. yeah the world is relative and i suppose the great thing about having you know a relatively small but you know we think perfectly formed network is that it's highly selected highly specialist and even though we don't all have you know the same logo and the same spreadsheets on us we know from the clients that we share and the trust that we have in each other and the fact that we see the whites of each other's eyes at least once often twice a year at a conference um, you know, where we're actually sharing business problems and being really transparent with each other about what we're good at and what we're not and, you know, learning from each other, then we really do trust each other and therefore, you know, we trust that clients can. And in the end, um, there is a spot, a single point of contact, a troubleshooter, you know, that, and this is the same with the big networks as well, someone you can go to as a client and say, this isn't working, sort it out. And mm. that applies to us as much as it would to any network. And that's me, by the way. So why the... Um... <laughs> So one of the key things that the reasons it's worked is because you've gone for a specialist niche, uh, if you like. Yeah. In, in many ways, you're if you were building a um, a non-sector focused be club, that would be and frankly to add almost impossible now, right. given that you know either you know all, all the big agencies have pretty well bought everyone 
in most markets that are generalists. Right. You know, most countries are full of um, either really, really small specialist agencies or ones that are on our parts of networks. Um, yeah, and I, I think there isn't necessarily um, an easy way to do that now. Okay. So, uh, but I mean, just so, how successful has Sermo been? I mean, there's, uh, you are, it, it's a, if you put all of you together, mm. it's a, it's a, it's a big group now, it's isn't it? It's a big old beast. What's yeah. the combined fee income then? Oh God, it must be. Um, it's over 40 million. It's over it? 40 million. Yeah. yeah. I think it was about 42 at the last count. Yeah. 500 people around the world. I mean, that's, that's quite a lot. That is. And also, like, I, when I was looking it up, I, I, I checked that twice. Was, <laughs> you know the figures better I, than I do. I was like, blimey. I'm, you know, yeah. that's, that's more than I but, thought it was going to be by a long shot. Yeah. And I, and I know that might sound mildly patronising. I really don't think uh, Yeah, like it does that. a bit, but, actually. Yeah. But, uh, well, OK, that's that's um, touche then, isn't it? You've but, got, but you've got your terrible trainers take, on and you patronise me about the, you know, the size take, of my network. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. And I'm really proud of it. And I think part of... Part of the reason for joining the network, you know, for new, for new partners is, and in fact for the original partners as well, is we are small and perfectly formed as eight individual agencies. And the network is relatively small, say, compared to ha, ha, WPP or whatever. Um, but we all really love being part of something bigger. Right. Uh, it's really nice to say I'm part okay. of a network of 500 people. You know, these are people I can pick the phone up to. They can help. They have got some knowledge. They have got some um, insight. Um, presumably, I mean, all of us... It, at some point in our careers, kind of, kind of like the idea about working across international work. Don't mm. we? So mm. it's, it kind of um, opens a door there as well, doesn't it? You can start feeling you're, you're part of no, something bigger. Absolutely, and and that's a really good point in terms of talent. You know, getting good people. Um, I think that's a real USP for Talk PR in London that we have this global network because there is that that shiny thing of potential. You know, travel and interesting work around the world. You know, a, a lot of people in our company go to you know global launch events for Adidas Pastella McCartney or you know Gucci fragrances and that's really interesting and they then hook up with our relative partners around the world and some of our partners um, send people to do you know kind of job swap here for a couple of weeks we've done that so it works on a sort of knowledge and yeah and, and and talent acquisition talent retention you know if you've got the if you can join a a medium-sized company in London, but be part of something bigger. That, that's that's a great thing. Okay. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on is a. It, it's not a sector. Well, we do a we do an event, as I mentioned on, on my intro, on on future of influence and mm. and some of the the best case studies we've got within that. In terms of working with influencers, Beauty. exactly. Yes, um, to almost the extent where I, I had to say no more case studies from from, from beauty and lifestyle, yes. if you like. Yeah. Um, but clearly, it is a sector that is is I don't know, probably ahead of the of the curve compared mm. to most other sectors on, on that that mm. influence engagement patterns and 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 new thinking. Well, it's not really new anymore. Well, thank but, you very much, Instagram. I have to say for well, that. It that's, wasn't the case when Twitter was the first social media. Okay, well, so, not the first, but you know, the, the Instagram was yeah. was something that that, that it's it a huge Instagram channel. changed everything. Yeah, I right. mean, you know, the the the. I mean, beauty is very innovative. Actually, as was fashion in, in blogging originally. We used to talk about bloggers a yeah, lot. Right. Um, yeah. Lots of very, very good um, beauty blogs. And in fact, Sermo, you know, the network, we, we 
we've done an index of influencers the last four years around the world. So it's almost like our kind of list of our best and favourite and most interesting influencers. But the first one we did four years ago was called a blogger index because it was yeah. you know, blogging platforms. That they were the main communication platforms. But very, very quickly that turns into basically into Instagram and YouTube, obviously. Now. Right. Um, so, so bloggers... Um, beauty bloggers are yeah. basically uh, a thing really of the past. well. I mean, a lot of them, you know, still have very, very good sites, and that's yeah. where the kind of the depth information but goes in. in. And, and and those and there are a lot of, I mean, yeah, there's influencers and influencers. You know, some influencers are you know, literally unpacking boxes in their bedrooms and doing makeup, and that that's fantastic. But then there's also influencers who really are more editorially based and more about, you know, really looking at the science and the education behind different brands. And they often have very in-depth websites and, and, and blogs, basically, mm-hmm. um, to but, but, for that depth information. But Instagram and YouTube have fundamentally changed how beauty brands market themselves. Right. But, fundam- but in terms of the channels, you've got the, the big volumes are on the, the or the bigger volumes are on Instagram and YouTube yes. and yeah. my assumption would be that it quickly falls yeah. off a fair bit when it Absolutely. looks at traffic on their website yeah, yeah. 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 so if you if you're trying to get the the, the the big numbers you're you're concentrated on their YouTube and you um, yeah. and Instagram channels yeah. sure yeah um what are the well, I'm always intrigued about the influencer space is that mm. clearly there's huge numbers of um of I don't know about young, but yeah, young motivated people who are uh, um, want to try and become influencers. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if you, but, or, or it seems that way anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I mean, I don't, I've always had a slight. You, you probably got more chance of, of becoming a Premier League football star than you have becoming an influencer. I don't know how many people try, but there's a, a huge number of fail. I think that's probably a many. really good analogy. Actually, there seems to be a lot of people having incredible success, but it's. I mean, God, it's hard work. Yeah. I mean, to really become a successful influence, you know, digital influencer in Instagram, it is a lot of hard work. I mean, are there? It's undefinable the secrets, isn't it? There's a bit of luck involved. What, what, what tends to? Um, well, I think there's got there's got to be genuine interest and passion and dedication to the subject matter. I mean, right. it, it is hard work. Um, and I think the, the the guys, or you know, the, the women and 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 men, although clearly in the beauty space it is dominated by women, it it, it takes a long time to build up a following, and, and they really do see it as as a job and and make it their their work. I mean, but I, presume it's a job that in the early stages anyway doesn't, doesn't pay very well. No, and you never know whether it is going to pay very well. True, you hope and pray True. and cross your fingers. That's but. why, along with a lot of you know. I know Gen Zs, millennials. Now you know they haven't got one job; they've got two, three jobs. So you know, yeah. originally, you know, it, it starts as—I don't mean a hobby, but you know—as one of their strands. And then if it goes well, it flies. And then if it oh. doesn't, they go and do something else. I mean, you've got to be much more kind of flexible and uh, you know willing to change your you know your focus these days. No one's just going to have one job. No, and, but on the other end of that, how many? What is the sort of product life cycle of, a, of an influencer? Do they? Do you find you sort of tend to deal with the same people for five years? And how does it? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of um, the influencers we deal with um, have been around for years and years and years, and have right. have made that transition from being known as bloggers into now much much more kind of social media based. Um, but yeah, but there's churn as well. That's why you need now 
really sophisticated data tools like Tracker or Hyper. I mean, there's many, many um, tools that can help you track influencers and and pick the right influencers, you know, along really, really fine calibrated, you know, criteria for different brands. Um, But but in the end, as in dealing with media, you know, the, the, the influence that we have more earned coverage with, you know, the way you, you, you sort of you might have a, a, a long term relationship with and you might do a couple of launches or a couple of commercial partnerships, but then you get that editorial coverage in between. They're the ones that you have proper relationships with. It's not just a kind of spray and pray, um, you know, data led media buy. I mean, clearly, you know, that there's nothing wrong with doing that, but it's not going to get you the long term um, relationship and that editorial that you want. So what's, what's it's the, still very editorially led. Well, I was going to ask, what's the sort of blend, if there is a trend between uh, paid and earned these days on, on Oh, God, I mean, it's, it's a complete mix. I, you know, in the same way as it was the media, you know, yeah. I mean, people seem to think, oh, you only got editorial in media. No, you don't. I mean, we used to leverage, um, you know, advertising spend to, to get editorial editorial coverage. And then there's that whole middle ground of advertorials, etc. I mean, it, it's it's the same mechanism with influencers in that you can have an absolutely fully disclosed, very, very good commercial relationship, but then you also do trips, you're gifting. I mean, all, all of those things are part of the coverage generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's that's a, a very sensible way to approach it. Okay. Um, and just finally then, what, what's the future hold for, for Tanya? Well, I am currently halfway through an MSc in science communication at Imperial College. Wow. Uh, which is where I first went uh, to study maths many years ago. Because um, uh, I'm actually, uh, I'm a scientist at heart. I'm a bit of a geek. Um, so I'm, I've got a little sideline in science communication going on. And, you know, that informs my day job anyway. But it's yeah, sure. really exciting. Well, just talk about the, the science behind communication. What, give me a little No, not the science behind communication, the, the communication of science. Because science is a hugely important subject. Imperial College is a science-based university. Gotcha. Um, one of the best in the world. Uh, and um, science is, is a a very complex and important subject. I don't just mean in terms of you know promoting technology developments and all the rest of it, but actually just in terms of policy, healthcare, yeah, you know, wow. any, anything to do with government policy on engineering works. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a massive, massive, massive subject, but very complex, very difficult, and um, needs to be done well. Okay, that's I'm learning. I remember this now. Your your um, your original degree was a scientific degree, wasn't it? Is that right? Well, was I started off doing maths at Imperial, that's and it. then segued into um, economics at the LSE. That's right. But maths-based economics, so econometrics. And lunch yeah. we had about five years ago is, is <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm recollecting as, as the, yeah. the clogs no, are turning. I'm, but, I'm, okay. I'm a scientist, but I always loved the media, which is why I, I always loved magazines. That was what drew me into PR originally, just obsession with the media. Brilliant. Tanya Hughes, we've run out of time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.